We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 this morning. Acts chapter 9. We'll pick up in our reading there. If you'll recall from last week, we saw uh, that Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. And then we saw uh, Philip uh, speaking with the Ethiopian who responded in faith and belief to the Old Testament scriptures. And believing in faith, he then was baptized. And uh, now we pick up in chapter 9 where we are familiar, I think, with this text of Saul's conversion as he is seeking to to destroy the church, really persecute it, persecute Christ. Acts chapter 9, though, beginning in verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked uh, letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were of the way... Whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way is uh, kind of the terminology referred to the Christians at that time. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your, to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he is a, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached that Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem, on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took, took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. Then the brethren found out, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. Then, he dwelt, then there he found a certain man named Ananus, who had been who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananus, Jesus the Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there, and they sent two men to, to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter rose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when she had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Genesis 24, please. One of the longest chapters in the book of Genesis. I think, as I sometimes do with my students in class, I'm going to have to ask you to uh, read the chapter. Uh, We'll read a good bit of it, but I'm not sure that we'll get through all of it today. I was encouraged by that song, God Makes No Mistakes. He hasn't made a mistake in making any of you uh, and arranging your life uh, to the point where it is. But as Dan said, uh, we all have made plenty of mistakes along the way. God's factored all of that into his plan before the foundation of the world. And uh, so don't ever think that uh, I'm just a mistake or uh, I don't belong or anything like that. God has made you marvelously and we're glad for that. He's uh, taking you along a path and trying to bring you to a place of... uh, Loving him, turning to him, being his child. Genesis 24. I feel like it, brother. (laughs) Um, We're going to talk this morning about a different kind of subject than we talked about last week because Genesis follows real life. Griefs and joys happen in the book of Genesis like they do in real life, like the tide that goes out and comes back in over and over and over again. To every event, there is a season. In Genesis 21 through 28, there's the season of birth and testing and death and marriage and testing again and birth again, this time twins. We'll get to that. Trials, blessing, lost opportunity. Remember the young man who despised his birthright and could not find a place of repentance after that. And then there's conflict between the two brothers and one of them has to move away. This all describes the history of the birth of Isaac, the testing of Abraham to see if he would offer Isaac on Mount Moriah, the death of Sarah, the marriage, as we'll see here, of Sarah's son and Abraham's death and then the birth of twins, uh, you know, from Isaac and Rebekah, uh, Jacob and Esau, and 
All of that goes on there. That's what life is like. So we go from one chapter, death and the funeral, the burial, to another chapter. Now we're giving in marriage. And so we go from a very somber kind of mood to one that's got a little bit of a mixture of somberness to it, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, but then a great joy uh, in it. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Gentlemen, too, you might remember Proverbs 5.18 and the following, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Or the 19th chapter of Proverbs, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Think about the blessing, gentlemen, that your wife is. And wives, your husband. And if your marriage needs some tuning up so that the blessing is running smoothly, then take your marriage to the shop. If it needs a little tune-up, get some help. Read the Bible together. Read a good marriage book together. Get some help from a Christian friend or from your pastor. We'd be delighted to help with that if that is a challenge in your life at this time. And uh, don't tell me that you, your marriage has run just perfectly from day one. I guarantee that it hasn't, okay? Can I make that guarantee, brother? I think so. I think so. That's pretty safe. Okay, yeah. When you put two sinful people together, you can sometimes have sparks fly and not, the, uh, not all the lovey-dovey kind of sparks, you know. <laughs> so that's, that's how it is. There is. Uh, the tide goes out and it comes back in. In Genesis 24, the storyline is how Isaac found Rebekah. Actually, it's about how Abraham commissioned Eliezer to find a wife for Isaac. But actually, it's about how God arranged a marriage between two people to ensure the continuance of the Abrahamic covenant. Whenever you look at life and you just say, oh, Isaac found a wife, you know, it's so wonderful. Don't forget that there were people behind that, like Abraham and Eliezer, who were making it happen. And there is a person, capital P, behind that who has arranged everything for that to occur. And it's just a wonderful reminder to us that we just look at it on the surface. We've got to go deeper and look a little deeper and remind ourselves that God is the hero of the story here. Not Isaac, not Rebecca, not Nahor, not Eleazar or whatever. Uh, just a tremendous, tremendous account of what happened. God in fact, used the agency of an angel sent ahead of a human messenger along with the human agency of Eliezer, the servant, as, as far as we understand, and Abraham and Rebekah and her family to accomplish this needful task so that the Abrahamic covenant could be continued. Remember, uh, Abraham was given the covenant. He had no, no child. Well, if you're going to have descendants as the sand of the seashore and it's not going to happen by adoption, something's going to have to change. And so Abraham and Sarah eventually have Isaac. Well, Isaac, as we'll see, is getting maybe a little uh, older than you would expect for a young fellow to get married, and he needs to have a wife so he can have a child to carry on that same uh, promise that was passed down to him. This chapter for me, and I hope for you as well, is a beautiful account, one of the most emotionally stirring in the Scriptures, particularly for a young man who might be looking for a wife or have some grief in his life, and particularly at verses 63 to 67 when you see how the two of the, the young people come together and are married. It begins, the chapter does, in verse number 1 this way, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Well, isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God to fulfill his covenant promise to his servant? God promised, I will bless you. And he did. And even in Abraham's old age, he knew that, that blessing. It's such a, a great thing that God keeps his promises. God is faithful to his word. He did just exactly as he promised and kept that to Abraham. Remember that. God is the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And... Uh, we can trust him. We ought to trust him. He keeps his promises to us. I mean, think of, you know, we don't have the exact same kind of promise that Abraham had, but it's not too shabby when the Lord says, anybody who comes to me I will never cast out, and, uh, you know, the one who trusts in me, no one can snatch them out of my hand, nor can anyone snatch them out of my father's hand. 
That's a pretty meaty promise, isn't it? Yeah, what a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah, well, I'll use your favorite verse, brother. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Lord, how long do we have to endure all the nonsense that we see out in the world? Well, just, just wait a little longer, hang in there, persevere, God says, and his kingdom will come. It will. We keep praying for it. The second scene, if you will, in this story, this would make a beautiful play, by the way. Somebody's probably done that, or a beautiful short movie. Uh, Can you imagine it in your mind, seeing this? Abraham said to his oldest servant, the oldest servant in his house who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, I'll stop there just for a moment. The second scene here describes that Abraham called his servant and made him promise to find a wife for his son. And it had to be from among Abraham's relatives rather than from among the Canaanites. This was a This was a cultural and religious requirement that Abraham had for his son. Now, this idea of putting your hand under my thigh, that's kind of a strange thing. I I picture Abraham being kind of bedridden, unable to move, and this was a, um, a cultural practice, apparently, indicating the taking of some kind of solemn oath. This was like, you know, this is like a massive promise. This is a major deal. And Abraham also requires him, you know, don't take my son out of this land. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And then we'll see in just a moment what what happens after that. But note that there were certain qualifications for this uh, wife. First of all, She had to be from among the close relatives of Abraham. Second of all, she had to be willing to come back to the land. She had to be willing to pick up and move everything. If she was not willing, then the servant was released from the oath. Abraham did not want his son to marry an idolatrous woman from the surrounding area. He knew outside of his clan who among them were monotheists that believed the God of the Bible. Probably none. Very, very, very few. And so he knew that there was something going on in the, in the homeland. Perhaps he had received communication from Nahor's family, his brother, and he wanted to find that kind of woman for his son to be a faithful wife. Now, I'm going to say a number of things we can learn from this passage, but I'm also right now going to say some things we do not learn from this passage. Um, This particular way of going about finding a wife is not what we call normative for us. That means it's not directly applicable. There are plenty of things applicable in this passage. But first of all, Abraham knew from God that he would send an angel on ahead to make this situation turn out well. We don't know if that happens for us. Okay? So parents hoping for a godly spouse for your child or young people who are thinking, someday I'd like to be married. Second of all, Isaac had to have a wife for the continuance of the Abrahamic covenant. That is not something that we can say you have to have because you do not have the kind of biblical covenant promise riding upon you having a family to pass it on to the next generation. So I want I say those things to caution you. Don't come to this passage and say, well, God's going to provide me a spouse in the same way or my children a spouse in the same way 
as what he did here with Abraham and with Isaac. And we'll see a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, Now, look at verse number 10. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. You know, he could take anything he wanted to. He was the, the steward of everything. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. So it's cooler, it's not so hot in the heat of the day. He has 10 camels with him, which will come into a little mathematical equation for you here in a moment uh, about the water situation. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will give your camels also a drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So the the third scene in the chapter shows that after Abraham's servant agreed to the oath, he immediately commenced on a 1,200-mile round trip. That's minimum. And when you're bouncing up and down on a camel the whole way, it takes a month, perhaps, to go one way. So, um, you know, this isn't exactly like, where's Mackenzie? she upstairs? Yeah, we'll tell her it's not just like riding a horse. It's a little less comfortable, I would imagine. Um, but anyways, uh, he immediately goes on this journey to Mesopotamia, probably has to go up and around, as we've said before, a number of times. He doesn't want to go just straight through the desert. That's not the smartest way to go, even though it's the shortest way to go. Um, he needs to have some supply stops along the way. Um, and back, actually, remember in chapter 22 at the end, I just want to remind you of this, we did find out something about Nahor's family. Um, it was told to Abraham at the end of chapter 22, verse 20, Indeed, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. And then it gave the whole list of them. And then verse 23, it says, And Bethuel begot Rebekah. So it's like, um, so he, he bore all these ones, and Bethuel is one of them. And then the next generation, one of those was Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. So he has some information there about the family. So um, the whole trip, as I said, would have, you know, probably taken a couple of months, one, you know, a month out, a month back, or at least six, seven weeks. And Eliezer prayed for success and outlined to the Lord a set of circumstances by which he would know that God was guiding him to success. The girl who happened to be the one who responded in a certain way, he prays, would be the one for Isaac. Now, we don't recommend this approach for finding God's will, Okay. Um, I, I, uh, there's a couple books in the library. I think one is called Step by Step by a fellow named Petty. There's another one that's very good by Fryson on uh, decision-making and, and the will of God, which depart from a kind of mystical way of deciding on things. So, you know, the classic example that I've used is if you're applying for six colleges and, you, you know, you pray, Lord, let the first one be the one that comes in my mailbox, you know, comes back with an acceptance. And, and you get the first one back, and it's like, no, that's not the one I wanted to go to. <laughs> or they don't offer the best scholarship or something like that. And so you're like, well, maybe I'll adjust my prayer, you know, and you kind of have, it kind of becomes a, a, a you, you're the mediator of it then, right? And so you don't want to, You know, what you want to do is you want to use the means that God has given to us, like, first of all, knowing his word. I mean, you don't want to go to a college because, oh, it's a party school. Okay, where's that in the scriptures? You don't want to go to a school. Is that right? You can't say that, brother. (laughs) I know, I know. That's that's, that's inter-family conflict waiting to happen there. I won't repeat what he said because it would just raise too much controversy. Uh, But anyway, um, you can't choose, you know, you should be choosing, for instance, if you're going away to school, you need to be thinking, first of all, what is the church family that I'm going to get connected up with when I'm at that school? 
if there's no good church there or the churches are, you know, off, then I'll just tell you right now, it's not God's will for you to go there. How do you know God's will? (laughs) I read the Bible. That's how I know God's will. Um, So there's all kinds of factors. Ask your, your, you know, trust the guidance of your parents. I know that's hard when you're at that stage in life, but you've got to try to do it. Try as hard as you can to do that. Um, So we're not going after the mystical kind of approach of, of, uh, you know, what really this is is like um, throwing out the fleece. Remember that account, that Gideon? Wet on, wet on there and not on the ground, or wet on the ground and not on there. Then, okay, now I know that God has called me. Why isn't it good enough when the word of God comes to you and says, do this? Don't say, well, I'll, I'll listen to you if. Like, I decide what the circumstances are. Sometimes God is gracious, and he allows, he, he actually answers those requests, but very infrequently. And you might find you're praying and you're praying and you say, I'm I'm frustrated because God's not answering my prayer. Well, maybe that's not the kind of prayer that you need to be asking God to do. So, but this is what happened in this case. The Bible reports this, and there is a special circumstance, as we said, the angel and the Abrahamic covenant and all of that. But what does he say? Just notice for a moment what he says. This is not just like a random um, you know, thing that he says, I don't think. He says, I'm here by the well. Let it be that the young woman to whom I say, let down your pitcher that I may drink. She says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. You notice the kind of character that Eliezer is looking for in this young woman? He's not looking for a self-absorbed young woman who's just, I got to go get the water and I got to go back. I'm not looking at anything else. I hate this job. I, I, I can't stand doing it. He is looking for a young woman with the kind of character that is friendly, hospitable, and has a mindset to serve others. And she was energetic in her service. She drew water for him and likely for the traveling companions also because he had some men with him. He didn't go just by himself. And for the ten camels. Well, if you remember our baptismal tank, she would have to draw enough water to fill up that baptismal tank, 250 gallons, in order to supply for the camels and maybe a little bit more for the people. That's a lot of water. I mean, how much can a person let down into a, a well and bring it back up? I mean, if, you know, we have a convenient five-gallon bucket with a handle on it, and that's going to be about 40-some uh, pounds over and over and over again, 50 times, a five-gallon bucket. That's a lot of work. But she did it. She was the kind of girl that would do that. Eliezer was looking for a woman to be a suitable helper to Isaac, his master, and the next one to carry the torch of the Abrahamic covenant. He was not looking for somebody who was self-absorbed and didn't care about others and just wanted life to be all about herself. That wasn't the kind of girl that he was looking for. Now, notice that even though the specified events did occur, look at verse, where do we leave off? Help me out here. Uh, So you lost your place too, huh? So it happened, verse 15, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went to the well, filled up her pitcher and came up. Filled her pitcher and came up, sorry. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, listen to this now, even though everything he had asked had already come to pass, he, remained, he was wondering at her. I mean, who wouldn't wonder at her? She was beautiful, and she served just like he had asked God, and it was amazing to him. But he wondered, remaining silent, so as to know whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous or not. You see, he hasn't found out yet if requirement number one has been passed. 
and requirement number two has been met, right? He needs to know this is a girl from the family, uh, general family line of Abraham, and that she's willing to come back. So he still has he still has some questions here. Not everything's answered yet. So he's a wondering. Um, so the two qualifications had to be met, as I said. And, uh, you know, she has to be willing to leave everything and go marry a man she doesn't know at all. Okay, this is not, I mean, this is not blind dating. This is blind marrying. This is, um, you know, this is, this is worse than a long-distance relationship. There is no relationship. How do you figure that? How do you figure that? Well, in that culture at that time, arranged marriages were a much different kind of arrangement than what we're accustomed to now. If you think about it, I'm not saying that we need to do it this way at all, but I'm just saying I wonder at the wisdom of the ancients about how they did this when, as our brother has said before, we make the most important decisions at the time of our lives when we're least equipped to make them. But if you have a father who is 140 years old, who has been around the block a few times with Eliezer, his servant, they kind of have an idea about Isaac because they knew him from birth, and they know the kind of girl that would make a good wife for him. And do you think they're going to steer him wrong? Well, he might think so, but he's not 18 now or whatever either. So maybe he's a little bit more mature about that and says, hey, Dad, can you help me? I need some help over here. I've got to find a wife, you know? Uh, so anyways, we can add another reason now why this chapter does not give us a normative truth here about how to find a wife. The circumstances described are not the only way to do so, nor are they the best way. In fact, I would freely say that for a young woman to move away from her family sight unseen and go marry a man unknown to her today is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Besides being unnecessary, because there are numerous means of communication. I mean, if they had text messaging, 1,200 miles is nothing, right? Or 600 or 800 or whatever it is one way, they would be able to communicate. Video chat and all of that sort of stuff. Email, writing, visiting, Travel is inexpensive these days. And, and besides all of this, to get into a relationship like that is just downright dangerous. You hear about stories of this sort of thing on the news. You must look before you leap, please. And I'm not only referring to physical danger. There is that. But there's a moral danger. There's a practical danger. You must I'm talking to you young people now. You must find a spouse who is worthy of being married to, not some jerk or some princess that thinks she owns everything, right? Or whatever, bad qualities. Just because you have to be married, you have to find somebody to be with at, 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 you know, and, and quick, In such a scenario, the young woman's father certainly would go to scope out the situation with her. I I say all this because there are some Christians of the more mystical sort who actually take this passage and say, Lord, lead me just like this so I can find a spouse. No, don't do it that way. Ask for wisdom. Be willing to take the wisdom that people give to you. If, If your parents say, man, this guy is not right for you, dear, listen. Please do that. Or your pastor says, hey, you know, she doesn't have a clear testimony of Christian salvation, but you do. Hold up here. Exactly. Totally red light, you know. It's like, don't run the red light. I've seen a lot of people running red lights lately, by the way. Have you? Yeah, well, red lights in the Bible. Don't run red lights in the Bible. Not a good idea. Stop. Um, So... We can talk more about that sometime if you want some more. But listen, it's, I don't want to make finding a spouse like you know, a job interview. There's a relationship here. There's a, a precious, loving 
you know, relationship and hopefully, you know, man and woman fall in love with each other and all of that wonderful stuff. But you have to have your head screwed on in the right direction and be able to be objective, at least in some moments, and say, is this person committed to marriage? Are they, you know, dead set against divorce? Are they willing to be in church? Are they willing to submit to the Lord, to accountability with brothers and sisters so that we don't get ourselves into trouble, isolate ourselves and, 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 and be apart from everybody else? And before we know it, we're in big time trouble. So anyway, there's a new, because of the, the way the word of God has been given to us and we have the spirit of God and you have wise counselors, uh, we don't follow this particular approach uh, to marriage. But I'll tell you this, don't overdo what I've just said to say, well, that means God doesn't lead us. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that he leads us through providential means. I was delighted to hear the story of a young couple back here that told me how they met. And uh, what were the means for them? Well, so-and-so said to her, you got to meet this guy, you know, and the rest is history, as they said. Well, God used a person and a church and a connection to put them together. God is leading in all that, but not exactly this way. Now, we come up to the contractual arrangement for the marriage in uh, verses 22 all the way through 53. And so this is where you're going to have to do some reading at home. In uh, the next verses, he, he's wondering, you know, is this, is this really true? Is this too good to be true? And so um, he wondered, and uh, she had said, you know, her identification. And uh, so he said uh, in verse 20, well, actually 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a golden nose ring and bracelets to give as a gift to her for her kindness and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for in your father's house for us to lodge? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Ding, 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 uh, question number one. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. So there's a demonstration of a, a background of hospitality. She knows that her father and her household is willing to do hospitality like that, as I trust that our boys would know if somebody came to them and said, hey, you know, uh, can we have some help? Uh, we're missionaries and such and such and all that. And Absolutely. We will try to help if we can. Of course, we're not dumb and just let anybody walk into our house and all that. We want to make sure we know who they are, but you get the idea. Verse 26, Then the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. God took care of all the timing. God answered the prayer, as specific as it was. She invited him to stay with the family. He then bowed to the ground and worshipped God. This is the second occurrence of the word worship in the Bible. In Genesis 22, Abraham said, I and the lad are going to go yonder and worship, and we will come back. This is the second occurrence of worship. Now it's Eliezer, Abraham's servant. What a household full of worshipers. And notice his posture. He's bowing down to worship God. But one other question still remained. The young woman runs home to tell this unlikely story to her family. You'll never guess who I met at the water at the well today or this evening. And her brother Laban then comes out and speaks to Eleazar and invites him to come in. And the servant explained the situation in verses 34 to 41. It's kind of a rehash of what we've already read about, and what happened earlier in the day or the evening then. And now he came directly to his second question, and I'm going to jump down to verse 49 for sake of time this morning. And he says, Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either good or bad. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abram's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. 
an affirmative answer. Ding, 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 number two, both questions. The servant again worshiped the Lord because the Lord had led him providentially to the right place. He will lead you too, but there's a catch. You've got to follow. You've got to follow. You've got to be a follower of the Lord if you're, if you're expecting him to lead you. Don't, don't ignore the Lord and then all of a sudden uh, the foxhole ask him, Lord, lead me. He may not. He may. He's very gracious, but we need to turn to him and follow. There's, you know, for us, there's no promise of marital or material blessing in the gospel, and there may be trouble associated with following God, but the kind of blessing that God gives to those who serve him reaches far beyond material into the inner spiritual blessing that money cannot buy. So I ask you, have you paused to worship God when he's done you good? When he has given you a wife, a husband, a child, a home, a church, a significant new possession, an insight into scripture, have you bowed your face to the ground and dropped to your knees, profoundly thanking God? You say, well, I haven't done that every time. Well, not too late now. God's not bound by time. So if there's some blessings over the last 20 years that you haven't bowed down to the ground and thanked God for, you can do it now. You can do it now. And I encourage you to do it now. Be thankful for everything that God has done for you. Now, after a night of celebration and gifts, I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, By the way, it doesn't tell us this, but can you imagine the mother and the father of this young, beautiful woman, Rebecca? What have they been doing if they're godly people? Praying for a husband? And this guy just shows up out of nowhere? What an answer. The servant... (laughs) Understandably, he was a little anxious to get going. He didn't want to stay. They were like, oh, let her stay for 10 more days. And he's like, well, man, I'm in a hurry. I got a, I got a wife to bring back to this young man who's been waiting. And so Rebecca was asked if she's willing to go, and she said she was. Just that quick. The family offered her blessings, not knowing if they ever might see her again. Read that blessing. Uh, it's down in verse 60. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Well, that happened, didn't it? That happened. Uh, all of the millions of the Jews who have come from this lineage can trace back all the way to that blessing in verse number 60. This scene, of course, will become more poignant to you as your, if your parents, as your children come to adulthood and leave the nest. You think about that. That's, uh, that's a new phase in life, isn't it? So Rebecca went along with the servant. When they came near to home, Isaac was out walking in the field at evening time, and maybe he was meditating on the things about the death of his mother or whether the servant's journey for him was going to yield a favorable result. Can you imagine not knowing when they're going to come back? Waiting for weeks, weeks to see if this journey was going to be profitable, as it were. And, or, or maybe he's meditating on the promises of the Lord to his father and to him. It says in verse um, 63, And Isaac went out, to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Well, he saw the caravan coming with his bride. What an exciting scene, isn't it? That's why I say this is one of the most emotional passages in Scripture when you think of the, the, the grief that has beset this family at the death of the mother, the matriarch. And now this. The servant tells Rebecca she's approaching her now betrothed and soon-to-be husband. He informs Isaac of everything that had happened once they reach him. And Rebecca reacted interestingly. She asked, uh, who is this man in the field walking to meet us? And and the servant explained. And uh, so it says she took a veil and covered herself. Covered herself. What's that all about? 
Well, her face being covered was traditional cultural practice until they were married. Now, that may seem a strange tradition to you. I mean, wouldn't you like to see your betrothed face-to-face at least the first time? Well, that's how they culturally did it, and I'm not going to judge that culture. Just leave it like it is. In our culture, a wedding day veil is a symbol of modesty, of reverence, of obedience. That, of course, is quickly passing away, that significance in our culture, because, you know, it's just about how the bride looks, and it's an accessory, and everything's got to be perfect, and all that sort of stuff. Um, But I think we would do well to keep that significance. It reminds us of the need for modesty in our attire. Certainly before marriage, modesty. Today, it's well beyond a question of modesty. The common cultural practices, hooking up and all that sort of stuff, you know, before marriage, inappropriate and ungodly behavior. Rebecca was trying to be unquestionably modest as she approached her new husband. For us, it may be hard to exactly define modesty or immodesty, but I think it would be easier for us to spot it when we see it than to define it in words. But we must be very careful and selfless to be modest, not just in the matter of head coverings. If nothing else, we can be sure that we need to be modest in our dress because 1 Timothy 2.9 tells us that the women to be dressed appropriately, modestly, respectably, not in a sensual manner, not in a revealing manner, uh, worldly, fleshly, lustful, loose, or immoral should not be things that could uh, describe our attire. The time for immodesty, can I say it this way? The time for immodesty is between a husband and wife in their marriage, in the privacy of their marriage. Uh, there doesn't have to be modesty per se in that private intimacy of marriage, of course, but outside, certainly, it does. So now the beginning of their marriage In verse number 67, it says, Then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, and he took uh, Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I don't know where I got all these notes from. They just keep on going and going here. Uh, The Bible summarizes the marriage itself and one of its effects. It brought comfort to Isaac after his mother's passing. Now, this wasn't the only result, but it was a significant result at this season in his life. Now, this is interesting because uh, it teaches us a number of things. First of all, this, the, the comfort that Isaac received from companionship teaches us that it's not, or reminds us rather, it's not good for a man to be alone. A lot of guys, for some season of their life, think they can be alone, and they fool themselves. I felt that way for a while when I had no luck, so to speak, with finding a young woman. And I said, I'm just going to, what's the word, bury myself in my studies, in my work, and I'm going to just ignore all of that. And for a season, for a young man, that's not a wrong thing in a sense, But you come to a point where you realize, I can't keep going like that. That's not right. It's not godly. And so Isaac, rather, was 40 years old at this time. You say, wow, they really married late back then. Well, that's that's nothing. His dad was 140 at this time. It had been two to three years since his mother Sarah had died in the previous chapter. And evidently there was no woman among the servants or the larger household, the clan that they had developed in that region, who was um, his age or his type or whatever. Second thing we learned from this is that comfort from grief can be found in your closest personal relationships. Comfort from grief can be found in your closest personal relationships. In this situation, it was the intimate closeness of marriage, somebody to love, to talk to, to walk with, to work beside, to share meals with, to wake up in the morning next to. You have grief? Invest in those close relationships that God has put around you to help you to reduce the effects of grief. If you isolate yourself, you're only going to exacerbate, that is, increase 
amplify the effects of grief in your life. Isaac had been two or three years in grief over his mother. It was high time for him to move on out of that stage. Third thing we learn, if we recognize that these relationships that God has given us are gifts from God, then we will recognize that God has not forsaken us. You know, you, you, oh, my mother, my dear mother. But what about all the others that God has still provided for you? Your dad who's still there, your new wife, your children, your other relatives, your church family. Look, don't, don't get so focused on, you know, the loss of one that you forget about the retention of many. And you build into those relationships and you will find joy and comfort in those personal relationships. God has not forsaken you, even if you have suffered a terrible loss. Isaac loved her, the text tells us, not just her comfort, but her, her as a person. And this propelled them forward in the coming years to eschew the polygamous environment that they were in around them. Polygamy, of course, then was practiced. Abraham, uh, Jacob, of course, It's illegal today because we've been influenced well by the Christian faith and understand that polygamy is damaging to women, to families, and to society as a whole. But there were other problems between these two, which we'll get into in the coming chapters, which uh, came out in their uh, favoritism for each of their children and the repetition of, the, of Abraham's mistake that, hey, she's my sister and not my wife kind of thing. So sin went from one generation to the next generation again. Well, as we close, God made arrangements for Isaac to find a wife, thus to be able to have children, and thus to propagate the Abrahamic lineage to the next generation. So the promise was secure. For us, it would be good to consider, as we did a little bit already, to some objective principles for finding a marriage partner. For the exact experience of Abraham and his servant is not how it works for us today. And so, you know, for instance, what are, what are some of those principles? For, for one, you must be solid in your conviction that marriage is a permanent establishment. So only a high-quality person is a candidate for you to consider for marriage. Physical appearance, as nice as it is, is not a guide or a requirement in this sense. There are far more important qualifications than just, oh, wow, she's good to look at, or he is handsome, or whatever. That's that's secondary by far to these things. I've only just said one. There's a whole bunch more we could talk about. We don't have time. But be serious about this matter, friends. Finding the right spouse is critical. It's crucial to your future. Far better to wait and to get the, per- the, the right person than to rush and get the wrong one. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this joyful passage of Scripture that uh, shows us uh, of the marriage of uh, two young people, and we ask that you'd help us to take principles we've learned from here and cautionary notes about the correct interpretation and put them into practice in our own lives, and we'll give you thanks for that. Bless your name, Lord, for teaching us these things in your word. In Christ's name, amen.